All right, we're in 2 Samuel 6. Now, let me explain where we're at, what we're going through. Um, First and 2 Samuel really is one book. The idea of it becoming two books, you could say the emphasis was more following Saul and Saul reigning as king. We saw in chapter 31, him and his sons, except for one of them, die on Mount Gilboa. Now, 2 Samuel begins, in a sense, with David hearing that news and David's anointed the king. So 2 Samuel more follows David as that anointed ruling king. And I'm excited for 2 Samuel. You know, we saw David running and flipping for his life over and over again. And now we get to see David really bring in the kingdom. So let me kind of like, just in case you're new or in case you've missed this, or we asked you guys to read some chapters this week on our social media, I want to catch you up to speed on what's going on. Uh, In chapter two, we see that the tribe of Judah, that was David's tribe, they anointed him king. They said, you are a king in chapter two. Now, uh, this wasn't all of the tribes, just one of the tribes acknowledged David as king. And this is actually going to be a precursor for when the kingdoms do split. You're going to see Judah go off, and you're going to see the other tribes go off. But then you see uh, in the next chapters, there's a couple key characters. David has a general named Joab. Uh, now there's another guy named Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, he's the son of King Saul, the only one that remained alive. Now that's probably because he was a coward. He wasn't fighting on Mount Gilboa against the Philistines. But Abner, his general, makes him the king. Abner's a really respected guy amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, hey, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, this is our king, not David. Abner and David didn't really have it going for each other at all. So Ishbosheth is made king from Abner's vantage point. And there's, in a sense, a battle between uh, David's men and Ishbosheth's men, between Joab and Abner. What we're going to see next is you're going to see Abner kills this guy named Asahel. He's actually the brother of Joab. That makes Joab furious, as you can imagine. His brother's dead at the hands of Abner. Abner didn't want to do that. You can read this in chapter two and three. Abner didn't want to, but he kills the brother. Just kind of next big picture. These are the spark note version. Uh, Abner's going to switch sides and join David because Ishbosheth accuses him of something he doesn't like being accused of. So now Abner's like, hey, I'm with David. And he's telling the tribes, hey, other tribes, David is the true king. He's the rightful king. Now, Joab finds out Abner's with David and says, uh, this is not okay. This guy killed my brother. Joab pulls Abner aside and he kills him. David's furious. He curses Joab, doesn't kill him. Next part of the story is Ishbosheth, the king. Uh, he's actually going to be murdered. So now there's like no one else claiming the throne. All right, here's again, spark notes. Eventually in chapter five, all of Israel comes along and says, listen, David, you're the one true king. They confess him as king. They anoint him as king. David has three anointings. He's anointed privately by Samuel. He's anointed by the tribe of Judah and now by the rest of the tribes. And chapter five, he takes over Jerusalem. He dwells finally in Jerusalem, establishes his palace. The city of David is in Jerusalem. He defeats the Philistines. Here we are in chapter six. David is officially the king. His first decree as king essentially is we must bring back the ark of God. We must bring back God's presence into our midst. This is his first decree. This is so important. David's like, you know what? My kingdom's gonna be different because I'm not the real king. And he's trying to show them we, ne- we can't do this without God. I don't wanna do this without God. God, in a sense, has been on the outside and he says, we need to bring him back in. Let me just say this. Um, the title today is Seeking God's Presence. Seeking God's Presence. If God has been on the periphery or the outside of your life, this is a great message. This is a great story. This is a great uh, truth. God's been on the periphery. And David's like, no longer. I don't want God on the outside. We must bring God back in the center. God needs to be the center of everything. Yes? Amen? He's like, it's not, it's not okay that he's number two or three. It's not okay that the ark hasn't been in Shiloh for 75. It's not okay. We must bring God back to the center. And just to summarize it simply, um, honestly, if you look at this chapter... This is a story about God being on the outside and now he needs to be brought on the inside. That God needs to be at the center of everything. And I can't think of just like a more appropriate kind of topic or text just for life because it is so easy for God in my life to be secondary, to be on the outside. And David has to fight in a sense to get him here on the inside. So David's first decree, we must get God back at the center of everything. Yes? So that's my prayer today. Simply put, we'll walk through this story. We'll read through it. 
But I think what a great, what a great truth for us. How do we get God back at the center of everything? And when God's presence is near, what does that do? God's presence is a terrifying and beautiful thing. It's both. And we're going to see that kind of happen amongst the people of Israel. So why don't we just pray, and then we'll look at our story. Yes? You guys ready? This is a really famous story. I love this story. This is where David dances and leaps around. This is where his wife goes, how dare you? And he's like, I'll be even more dignified than this. You watch me. It's a great story. Can't wait. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that we can, this Sunday morning, stop what we're doing, come in here. Despite if we've had a long week, crazy week, we're tired, we're frustrated, we're sick, or whatever. And we can just remember, Jesus, that you are on the throne. Lord, that last song we sang, I asked that it would be true, that it be true, that your presence is all that we long for. God, I don't know how, how true that is often. I ask that that would be just, just today, that'd be even more true, Lord. That that would be what we're in pursuit of. That we long to be with you. That God, we would not just sing these songs, Lord, but we would declare them as new ways in which we want to live. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that your presence, God, is beautiful, it's joyful, it's humbling and terrifying. And it, God, God it, it, just, it just brings blessing, and that's what we see happen. And uh, God, we ask that you would just speak and move in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, there are some things, like actual things in life, that bring us a lot of joy. There's some, like, items in life that bring us joy. For others, it might bring them frustration and contempt, but there's some actual things that bring us a lot of joy. You know, for my daughter, something that brings her joy is stuffed animals. She loves stuffed animals. I mean, her stuffed animals are her little friends. She'll line them up on the couch with her, and they'll watch TV with her. That's what she does. I came into the living room the other day, and she has a blanket on one of her stuffed animals. Like, it's sleeping next to her, right? Like, her stuffed animals bring her so much joy. You know, recently, we were at a theme park, and we were uh, at one of those games or saw one of those basketball games. You shoot and can win a stuffed animal, surprise, and the stuffed the, the prize was a, like a giant dog, a giant stuffed dog. And my daughter sees this giant puppy. She's like, Dad, win me the puppy, please. Like, you can do it. Win me the puppy. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, again, I, I love basketball. I play basketball my whole life. I'm like, these things are like, a, they, they, I don't know. They're trying to trick you. Like, there's no way. The hoop's like this big. The basketball's, I'm like, it's not going to work. So we're like walking up and I'm like, let's just watch this family do it. And there's these like dads and these moms watching the little kids nearby and this dad was shooting. It was three shots for $10. The lady was being really sweet, and she's giving you four shots for $10, right? What a deal. And he was shooting four shots for 10 bucks. And if the ball bounced back, if it hit the rim and came back, he got it. And I'm like, dude, he was, so, there's so many shots in and out, banging up high. Like it was so, I was like, bro, I'm like, this is rigged. I'm like, yeah, like on his side, I'm like you can do it. You know, he missed over and over again. And we were done. They're like walking away. I'm like, hey, we, our family asked like, how, how many, you know, times did you pay for that? He's like, I just spent $40 and nothing, $40 and nothing. I'm like, at that point, they should just give you the stuffed dog, right? Like 40 bucks. He's like, yeah. And she probably gave him four or five shots per time. Like he took 20 shots nothing, nothing. I just, we just felt so bad. He's giving it to his friend. He's like, you try. And I'm just like watching the whole thing. And he's like walking. I'm like, okay, I guess let me try. I'm like, I need to, I need to try. She's like, you can do it, dad. So I get the ball, dribble the ball, first shot, swish. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie. I know this is bragging. This is not okay. I know. Forgive me. But I'm not gonna, it felt, and I made the first shot. He missed 20. I made the first one. My daughter freaks out. She's so excited. I like look back at the family like, oh, I feel so bad. I look back at the family, they're like kind of clapping, they just walk away bitter, you know. It, it was so awful. And she has, she won this giant puppy. I had, I took the other shots, I missed them. Uh, my mom was there, she's really sweet. She, my son wanted one now. He's like, win me one. And I, I couldn't make one for him. So I tried to pay 10 bucks, couldn't make one for him. My daughter's elated, my son is furious. It was the best and worst thing that ever happened. It like, it made the day so awesome and it ruined the day. My daughter though was carrying this around like a prize. I, I did bring a picture because it's the best. But she won the puppy. 
she's carrying it around. She wanted everyone to see. I heard families like walking by, like, I guess you can make the shot. I didn't think people, like, you're hearing them talk about it. Like, I didn't think you could make it. And I'm not going to lie. I felt bad for that family, but I felt really good. Like, it was bad. It was so bad. And it was funny because this thing that brought her, I mean, listen, it still causes fights like now because now it's like, whose bed is it going to sleep in? My daughter's and my son is not happy about that. But you look at this. This thing that brought her so much joy brought someone else so much contempt. Now, here's the thing. In the story, we're going to see the Ark of the Covenant bring David so much joy. He cannot just, he wants to show everybody, and it's going to bring his wife, Michael, so much contempt. And I want us to see this because this is so much more than a, a prize. David knows what this is. I don't know if you and I really fully grasp, like we can talk about the Ark of the Covenant. You've maybe heard of it. I remember my first introduction to the Ark of the Covenant was through Indiana Jones. It really was through that. Like as a kid, like seeing the Ark of the Covenant, I go, oh my gosh, like is it still around? How do we find this thing? Um, The Ark of the Covenant, I I don't know if we feel the weight or grasp how important it is to the people of Israel, especially then. Uh, I don't think we understand that this was God's footstool how God, how heaven came to earth. Now, this is so important. David's going, I'm going to be the king. I can't do this without the true king. We need God's presence here in the land. We need him ruling. We need him reigning. And so here's what we're going to do. As we kind of walk through 2 Samuel 6, I want to like focus in on this main thought, which is God's presence. Because David realizes I need God's presence. I can't do this without him. I can't be a king without him. I absolutely need God's presence. So here's kind of the four points. We'll break down our text. Uh, The presence of God needs to be, it has to be center. The presence of God needs to be at the center. Number two, the presence of God brings judgment, just does. Number three, the presence of God also brings blessing and joy. And there is that contrast. We'll look at that. And number four, the presence of God brings contempt. A lot of times the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit. So let's just walk through our text. Can we do that? Number one is this. Uh, the presence of God needs to be center. Let's look at the story. David, remember, he's now officially anointed king for the third time. Chapter five. He's the king over all of Israel. He brings the capital to Jerusalem, and his first act is, let's get the ark. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. It says, David again gathered all the, the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from uh, Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. And Ahio went before the Ark. (laughs) Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating. They're celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and uh, castanets and cymbals. I want you to get a picture for this. David is going, listen, I'm king. You just all acknowledge that. We need to get the ark of God from the house of Abinadab. We need to bring it back. See, the ark for them, again, was something so much more than a box I mean, maybe you've seen it. Maybe you you have an idea of it. We'll put a picture up up here just so you can kind of have a visual. But this was like a chest overlaid with gold on the inside and outside. You have two poles with the kaya wood that was overlaid with gold. You have the cherubim, the angels on top. Inside, you have the Ten Commandments. You have the bull of manna. You have Aaron's budded rod. I mean, this is, in a sense, the most holy thing, the most important thing the nation of Israel has. Now, for 75 years, it hasn't been in Shiloh where it was. Um, this is one of those things where during Saul's reign as king, it was kind of like, remember, they, kidnapped, they stole it. They bring it back. It's just at some guy's house, essentially. It's not really treated with the respect it deserves. This is the piece of furniture, you could call it, that was placed into the Holy of Holies. Uh, In the tabernacle, you had the holy place where the priest would do his work, but then you had the Holy of Holies where you had this Ark of the Covenant. This is where you had, in a sense, God meet with the priest. This is where on Yom Kippur, the priest would take this bowl full of blood, sprinkle it on it, and he would atone for the people's sins. This is, in a sense, where God met with his people. The Ark of the Covenant is called God's footstool. If you think about just the imagery of that, you think about a king on his throne and his feet often on a footstool, the idea was like this is an extension of the throne. The idea of the footstool is this is still a part of me. 
this is still like, I'm, I'm there, my feet are there, but this is a part of the throne. The idea is, think about the Ark of the Covenant for a second. This is where heaven meets earth. I mean, this is a beautiful thought. If you go, I want to I experience the all-powerful living God. Well, only one man, one day a year, could actually meet God in that, the high priest. But this is like weighty. This is heavy. This is being brought back now, finally, back to the nation of Israel. And I want you to see David's like, we need God's presence. His first order of business as king is I need people to really know who the real king is. Just so you guys know, and kind of we're at a point now in 2 Samuel um, where if you want to read through 1 Chronicles, like chapter 10 through 15, we see very similar stories. Like as you work our way through 2 Samuel, these stories are repeated in uh, 1 Chronicles in different ways. You can read along in that way. We gave guidebooks at the very beginning. But you see comments throughout 1 Chronicles where David realizes like this is, this is God's throne. This is where God meets us. Like this is where we encounter God. And David's really clear. He's like, I need people to know who the real king is. Like everyone's acknowledged me as king, but there really is one king. David right away is leading differently than Saul. David's like, I'm a different leader than Saul. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna seek God. I'm gonna inquire of God over and over again. David inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He's seeking God. He's seeking God. Now he's like, now we need God's presence here. We finally got Jerusalem. We need the ark of God here. I, I want us to see that when you, like for all of us, when you realize that the presence of God has not been a part of your life, what do you do? Like if you right now, I kind of evaluate your life and you go, you know what? I don't know if I'm hearing from God, if I'm experiencing God. I don't know if I'm getting anything out of this. When that thought kind of hits you, like what do you do? David's thought is simple. Go get it. Go get it. He's like, I need to get it. We need to bring this back in. I want to be really clear. When God is not at the center of your life, your marriage, your friendships, your parenting, the way you do relationships. What do you do when you realize that? I would say the simple answer, we don't need to complicate it, is go get it. Like, go get it. There's an idea of like, you know, James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Like, God, I, I, need, I need you. I cannot do this without you. I need your presence to be here. There's something different too between being aware that God is near. Like we, we know God is here, but do we really know that? Do we experience that? Do you experience that manifest presence of God? Do you have those moments in your life where God, you feel like, God, you are speaking to me. You're convicting me of sin. My heart, my attitude, my actions. God, you're encouraging me. You're just overwhelming me with your love right now. Do you have those moments where you go, this is more than just reading the Bible or prayer, but I actually sense that God is near. It's almost like what Jacob said. He goes, oh, the Lord is in this place. Do you have those moments where you go, the Lord is in this place? Do you know that the Lord wants to meet you in that way? Really, do you know that the Lord wants to be more than just information, more than just songs we sing in the beginning of church? more than just like we go through the motions. God wants all of us to have this, these moments where we go, the Lord is in this place. God is near. Listen, how, how, we need to fight for those moments where it's so much more than theory to us, but like, oh, God, I'm gonna give you space. Show up, make yourself known. You know, I love what one author said. His name is John Tyson. He said this about God's manifest presence. Listen to this. He says, it's the difference between God's omnipresence and manifest presence, we have to create environments that actually facilitate an encounter with the living God. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, when the, prof- when the prophetic is working well in the church, the unbeliever will come in, the secrets of the heart will be exposed, and they fall on their face and say, surely God is among them. And that is my testimony, he said. I want you to hear that. There's something, if you ever read this actual section in 1 Corinthians 14, there is something about... Um, we should create these moments where we're going, God, you have to show up. God, you have to speak. God, during worship, like there is that prayer, just so you know, like before church or during worship, like God, show up, speak, convict hearts, heal hearts, restore hearts. God, like bring, expose things, bring things to light. There's some of those things like, God, just do something, like show up. How many of you want more than just a stereotypical go through motions, church service, or time alone with God. How many of you want more? Like, God, I want more. Like, I'm actually hungry for you, right? It's okay to raise your hand for that. Yes. Like, God, I'm actually hungry for you. This is that manifest presence. Like, God, please show up in a unique way. David is going, God, we need your presence. 
So just so you know, the ark of God represented a few things. Um, God's lordship, God's nearness, God's ways. I'll put it up like this way. God's lordship. Remember, this is his, uh, the ark of the covenant. It's God's footstool. He's on the throne. He's, he's the ruler. He's ruling and reigning. He is Lord. What he says, go. Uh, the ark represents God is near. He is near to us. His ways, the 10 commandments being in the ark, God shows us how to live life. The ark was so important to them. I mean, this was the thing that people brought out when they marched around Jericho seven times. It's the Ark of the Covenant that led them. It's like, God, we need your presence to go before us. And David is like, I don't know why we haven't had this here for so long, but we need to bring this thing back. What a great way to start off his time as king. What a great way to start your family time, to start your life, to start marriage. Like, we need God to be center. He has to be. Let me say this, fight for this. It is so easy it is so easy to go, I know it's there somewhere. I know God, I know, it's pre- I know it's there somewhere. Like they knew the ark was with Abinadab. I know it's there somewhere, but there's a difference between knowing God's presence is there somewhere to like knowing it, right? So we got to go from, I know it's there somewhere. It's with Abinadab, right? Yeah. David's like, go get it. Bring it back. This has to be at the center. I, again, I can't really move on too much from this because I feel like this is the whole point of this. God has been on the periphery for way too long. David is like, he needs to be the center now. A.W. Tozer said this. He says, God is always nearer than you may imagine him to be. Listen, God is so near that your thoughts are not as near as God. Your breath is not as near as God. Your very soul is not as near to you as God is. And yet, because he is God, his uncreated being is so far above us that no thought can conceive it, no words can express it. He is both God ruling and reigning, and he's the God who's near. And he's like, he's near. We need to realize that God is so much more than just, in theory, God is here in an omnipresent way. When Jesus says, lo, I'm with you always. Behold, I'm with you always. What do we think that means? I really do think that there, there, there's, a, there's a difference between being aware that God is there and knowing and saying, the Lord is in this place. And I hope you have those moments, whether here on Sundays or alone in your room or driving your car, where God's speaking to you, overwhelming you. Maybe it's just the goodness and love and grace of God is saying, don't you know you're mine? Why are you running from me? Whatever that is. And you just get overwhelmed and God's like, I'm here. And you're like, yes, surely the Lord must be in this place. We have to go from just having this kind of vague idea of theory that God is somewhere there to like God is actually here. David is going, we must bring the ark of God back in. Again, I can't think of a better way to start his time as king. Yes? But here's the thing. When God's presence comes near, it can be scary. <laughs> if you've ever had that, we'll look at that. We see kind of what happens first thing. Um, so number two is this. Uh, God's presence, the presence of God, it brought judgment. And this happened a lot. So let's just look at this. Verse six. The presence of God brings judgment. Again, I just, I, I don't know if you know this at the exchange, but we love to share really encouraging words like judgment. Um, verse six. Here we go. It says that when they came to the threshing floor, so they're marching with the ark. They came to the, th- the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there because the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, like outbreak against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. Stop there. Crazy. When, if you just, this is maybe your first time reading the story. I don't know. I remember the first time reading this. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, what? Like they're carrying the ark on a cart, on a cart, the oxen, the oxen stumble, Uzzah sees it about to fall, and he goes, ah, let me stop it. Puts his hand out, drops down dead. Now, if you're like me, you're going, uh, God, what is that about? Like, how, how is that? Help me understand this one, God. I mean, think about this. 30,000 people are around. Like, they're celebrating. They're throwing a party. They're like, yes, the ark is coming in. He puts out his hand. Imagine 30,000 people just going silent. Like, you just see this guy put his hand out. He's dead. 30,000 people done. David's afraid. He sends it to this Obed-Edom guy's house for three months. It's like, stop the party. This is, a, this is the biggest party killer of all time, right? Like, yes, it's coming to the house. Of, it's coming back to Jerusalem. Hand out, drops down dead. David's like, just keep it at Obed-Edom's house. I don't even know what's going on here. Three months it's there. I, I need us to see this because I, before you think God is some angry, just reactionary, bitter God, 
There's so many things here I feel like that we have to see. Obviously, the greater context is amazing, but this is so important. Um, First of all, we have to see a couple things. One, it's crazy how they are carrying the ark. They're carrying the ark on oxen. First of all, they're not to do that. The ark has poles. It's supposed to be carried by Levites, specifically Kohathites. It was never supposed to be carried by anyone or anything else. Never by an animal, never by anyone other than a Kohathite under the Levites. That's it. No one else can carry it. No one else can touch it. God was very clear. Numbers chapter four, verse 15. God's like, anyone who touches this will die. God is really clear. Like they had God's word. They have it. They have his commandments, first of all, in the ark itself. It's not like they're unaware. It's not like they don't know. Numbers four is dedicated to this. Uh, In Leviticus, there's there's a lot of texts dedicated to how you handle the ark, how you treat the ark, how you cover the ark, who can carry the ark. Um, There's so many details given to this. And yet it's completely ignored. It's completely overlooked. Uzzah, in his mind, probably thinking, let me, maybe he's well-intentioned, but you think about it, the idea could also be, oh no, this thing can't touch the ground, the ground's defiled, this thing can't fall or get defiled, I can do it, not realizing, but you too are defiled. See, there's there's an idea of this, which is, when we read this story and you go, this is intense, I don't get this, you you and I have to see this. Um, Sin always brings judgment. You and I have to see that our sin is always very serious to God. God can never overlook his word. He can never overlook and just wink at it. He can never be like, well, you know, I did say if you touch, you'll die, but except for Uzzah. No, God was really clear on how it was laid out. The idea is, I don't think Uzzah knew, I don't think we know how serious our sin is. I don't think we take sin serious. I don't think I realize always how sinful or how serious God takes my sin. I think we just kind of, we got to realize that God's like, yes, God is good. God is love. God is forget. God is all that, but hear me out. Sometimes we forget, like, no, sin is so serious. God is like, I have to go to earth and die for it. I have to die. It is so serious. Nothing else, no one else could ever pay for it. I'm the only one who can ever fix this. That there has to be sacrifice. Blood has to be shed for there to be fellowship. Like Leviticus 17, 11, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And there's this idea that sin is so heavy. Sin is so serious that it will be and it has to be judged. God cannot overlook it unless blood is shed. The thing that I think we, we have to see in this story is, again, I don't think anyone knows how serious our sin is. And it's one of those things that, let me just say this, before there's good news, there is bad news. You know, the gospel is this. The gospel is not just good news. The gospel is also bad news. We know this, right? Bad news. Apart from God, we are nothing. Bad news, we are on our way to hell, to separation from God. Our sins have separated us from God. The wages of sin is death. I mean, we have to realize that that's why the good news is so good, because the bad news is so bad. The good news is so good that Jesus Christ paid for my sin. He gave me his righteousness. He clothes me. He says, take my right. Josiah, you are a filthy sinner. You could never be good enough. So I have to literally give you my righteousness. Take off my garments and put them on you and say, now you're righteous. But for me to do that, I have to lay down my life. We have to see that sin is so serious. Sin is so heavy. It says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, our God is a consuming fire. Like when you read about God's presence coming near, it's always usually terrifying. Whether it's with Moses on the mountain and there's lightning and thunder, whenever God comes near, there is something incredibly humbling and terrifying. And it's really unique, actually. Whenever you see God doing something kind of new, you usually see God has to make a point like, hey, think about this. All eyes are on, are on this moment. All eyes are on this moment. For so long, they've been disregarding the ark of God, the tabernacle. They've been disobeying God. For so long, God's like, I have to make a point. I, I need you guys to see this. I need you to feel the weight of this. We see this in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira, remember? The couple that's like, everyone's bringing money and bringing gifts to the church and like, help people. Ananias and Sapphira, like, we have this much money to give, but they lied about it and the God strikes them dead. Like, what is that about? This is not just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing. Meaning God's like, when, when I'm doing something new, I need you to see that sin will be judged. Sin is serious. Now, David's gonna do something we're gonna see really brilliant. He's about to make some sacrifices. But I want you to see before we kind of move on from this, sin is heavy, sin is serious. Now, here's the point of this. Um, I hear a saying a lot that I say a lot. And I think I want to like clarify some things. Um, maybe you said this yourself many times. We all say this. We say Christianity is not a religion, it's relationship. And I go, yes, I agree. Beautiful. 
It is more about a relationship with Jesus. But sometimes I think we take that and we say, that means I can define this however I want. I can live however I want. I can do whatever I want. There's no definition to this whatsoever. And so since Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, I'll just do whatever I want. And in reality is, listen, there is a way to worship God. There is a way to live your life. See, there is a way to follow Jesus. It's not just, I can believe in him and do whatever I want. It's like, no, there is a, a lifestyle. There is a way to live. There's a way to live into. And there's something beautiful when you get that, like, wow, God, this, this thing that has your law, that has your commandments, I'm in a sense disregarding it. That's what Uzi was doing. I'm going to do what I think is good. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to save it. I'm going to do it. He had to learn the hard thing that you could never reach out your hand. You could never save yourself. You could never do it yourself. You could never do any of that. There, there is an idea of like, it's, it's grace. The reason why I think this is so important, I love what Warren Wearsby says about this. He says, no amount of unity or enthusiasm can compensate for disobedience. When God's work is done in man's way and we imitate the world instead of obeying the word, we can never expect the blessing of God. The crowds may approve what we do, but what about the approval of God? The way of the world is ultimately the way of death. Hear me out. Where did uh, David and these men get the idea of putting the ark onto oxen, onto a cart? Where did they get this idea? They got it from 1 Samuel chapter 6. If you remember, the Philistines sold the ark of God. They bring it to their temple of Dagon. Dagon falls over, over and over again. They're like, get this thing out of here. They put the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, onto a cart, and they send it back to Israel. And it worked. No one died. Nothing happened. Now, the Philistines didn't have God's word, right? They didn't know how to do it, but they send it back on carts. And they're thinking, well, it worked for them. It can work for us. In a sense, David is learning from the world on how to worship God. We don't learn from the world on how to worship God. We don't go to the world and say, what is the world doing? What is the world saying? And that's how we're going to do it. There's something about saying, no, no, God, you've given us your word. We're, we're going to actually follow your word versus what is the world saying? This is so important. This is such a good lesson. They're, they're using the carts, which is what the Philistines did. God's like, you know this. You know you have to carry it. That the Kohathites have to carry it. The, under the Levites, they have to carry it. You can't do it just because the Philistines did that way doesn't mean you can do it this way. I think too often the church is like, what's the world doing? How can we do what they're doing? When God's like, I've given you my word. This is better. This is more powerful. You'll never change the world if you look exactly like the world. You want to change the world, you're going to be a little bit different. It's going to look different. Uh, there is a way to worship Jesus. There is a way to live your life. And that's according to his word. And so right away, it brought judgment. And it was terrifying. David's like, leave it at Obed-Eden's house three months. But here's the thing that people don't think realize. There's also an incredible blessing with the presence of God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. No doubt. Our God is a consuming fire. No doubt. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 is real. But at the same time, you know what's real? In God's presence, there is fullness of joy. Both of these truths exist. This is so interesting to me. That there's judgment but let's keep reading verse 11. Look what happens in verse 11. There's blessing. Number three, the presence of God brings blessing and joy. Look at verse 11. What does it say? It says, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Eden, the Gittite, three months. It says, and the Lord what? Read that word. The Lord, come on, you guys, that's really bad. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Listen to this. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Parties back on. And when those who, who, who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of, of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, 
and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. This is so bizarre, right? So uh, they're bringing the ark. Uzzah touches it. He dies. The party stops. Keep it at Obed-Edom's house. But right away in verse 11, it says after three months, like during the three months, Obed-Edom is blessed. It's almost like David is jealous. Like, bring, go, go back and get it. But three months, right, of just blessing. I have no idea what that looks like, but it says he is blessed because of the ark of God. He is blessed because of this thing that brings God's presence. He is blessed. And David's like, let's go back and get this thing. And they go back and get this thing, and they're partying and celebrating. Now, before we keep going on, we have to see this also. Yes, the presence of God. Listen, it is bizarre. If you've ever encountered God, there is this overwhelming, I, I've experienced, you're kind of overwhelmed by your, by your sin. Like, oh my gosh, who am I? There are these moments for you that hits you. You go, I'm not God. Like, we all need to have those moments. I'm not God. I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm actually pretty messed up. I'm a wicked person. And like this heaviness of sin hits you. But then if you just sit in that, this overwhelming grace and love and goodness of God will also overwhelm you. And it is so interesting. We, we sometimes want to skip to the second part way too fast. Sometimes we need to sit in that first part and you realize, oh my gosh, what have I done? What am I becoming? God, I don't like who I am without you. This is just awful. And then the love of God has the opportunity just to overwhelm your heart and say, you're mine, but I've chosen you, but you who are dead in your trespasses and sins, I forgave, I reached out, I saved you, I love, and like at the same time, God just word, his truth just speaks over you and you go, oh my goodness. And you realize the presence of God that in a sense brought that judgment, it brought the realization of your sin. It also brings amazing blessing and joy. You know, number six, the priestly blessing. I just think of, I love this because God's like, I want you to speak this over the people, but the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When you think about that, priest, like, think about that. The Lord's countenance, his face, his presence. It's all about his presence. God's presence, let it bless you and keep you, give you peace. God's presence, do we see this? God's presence gives you peace, gives you blessing, gives you joy. There's something about God's presence that is overwhelming and terrifying, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The same time, as David said in Psalm 16, in your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do we hear that? That in God's presence, we know like, oh, it's scary, terrifying, but it's also fullness of joy. It's pleasures forevermore. It's crazy how like you have that, and that is the gospel. The gospel, again, is bad news, good news. Bad news is bad, but good news is really good. And that, the thing is, like, again, I can appreciate the good news because I know the bad news. And if I don't realize what I'm saved from, I, I, it's hard to appreciate what you're saved to. Go, oh, God, look what you called me out of. Look what you called me into. Oh, my gosh, thank you, Jesus. And there's something so beautiful about that. And so Obed-Edom, man, he's blessed. David's like, oh, I saw the judgment. And if I, saw, I don't like that. I want the blessing part. Go get it back and get it. David's like, go get the ark again. Three months later, the party's back on. David's dancing and singing and celebrating. The people are, just, this, this must be so bizarre. And it's, it's weird, by the way, the timeline did not go the way David thought. Three months off. I mean, it must have been so discouraging in this three months when you don't know what's happening to Obed-Edom. Is Obed-Edom alive? Like, what's going on? No, he's blessed, David. He's blessed because of the ark of God. Well, go back and get it. It's weird when things don't go your way or the timeline doesn't go your way. Or maybe you want to experience the presence of God and you're like, ah, oh, it's not happening. It took a few months. It took a few months. They're just throwing the towel don't just think, oh, I tried. It took a while. It will take a while sometimes. It'll take a while for that blessing to hit you. It'll take a while for it to sink in and go, oh my gosh, God. It might take a while, right? Did we get that? Three months, the party's off. Now party's back on. And I love that. I love what it says in 1 Peter 1. It says, uh, listen to this. And this is so beautiful. It says, though you have not seen him, this is referring to Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. Before I actually move on, I mean, this is what Jesus said to Thomas. Thomas, blessed are you because you've seen and believed, but blessed are those who've not seen and will believe. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. This is what David is doing. He's rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible He's leaping and dancing. I haven't been there necessarily myself. Um, I've, I've been excited about Jesus, the things of God. I'm, I, you wouldn't want to even try to see me leap. It would not look good. David was, no, David was known for leaping over walls. David could leap. I don't know. But you think about this joy where he's dancing and singing and like, it's amazing, the presence of God. And truly think about how big of a deal this is. For so long, the ark meant so much to Moses, to Joshua, 
and it's kind of faded. But now the presence of God is back. David knows how, and think about this, and the 12 tribes are reunited under one king. This is, this is huge. This is a big deal. And he's like seeing the big picture. And Michael, his wife, will talk about her in a second. She's despising him in her heart. That's not how the king behaves. We're going to read what happens in verse 20 in a second. But David is rejoicing and celebrating. And guys, what a beautiful, this is what worship does. When you've actually experienced the goodness of God, you really just don't care the response or reactions of others. You're like, I don't care. This is amazing. Like, I have something to celebrate. It's funny, I've, I've been asked, like, uh, before, people are like, why do you smile so much? I've, like, had people ask in aggressive ways. I'm like, what? What is that? It's weird. I'm like, because I have something to smile about. You know, like, the presence of God brings blessing and joy. It does. The, pr- the presence of God brings blessing and joy. I don't want to move over the first fact. It, it's terrifying. It's fearful. God will, like, break you down and then rebuild you into something way more beautiful than what you were in the first place. But it brings blessing and joy. And David is celebrating, he's excited. And I love this, they have a meal. They bring the ark of God in. And if you read verse 18 to 19, like don't lose sight of that. He gives them raisins, which is something they like. We might not like it, but they like it. Raisins and cakes and meats. And they're having a feast. That's what this is describing. It's like, oh, the presence of God is here. Let's feast. Do you understand Like this is the storyline of the Bible. At one point in time, we ate with God in a garden. We feasted with God. God made everything beautiful and good. We had an intimate relationship, presence with God, and we ate before him. That was lost. This is happening where David's bringing the presence of God back into Jerusalem, and they're eating in, in, like, in the middle of the, Ark of, the, of the Ark of the Covenant, like saying, God's presence is here, let's eat. It's like Jesus coming on the scene in, in the Gospels, and the presence of God is there. It's Jesus, God in the flesh, and he's like, let's eat. This is the story in the book of Revelation, where when we come together in the marriage feast of the Lamb, we're all together under the presence of God, and what do we do? We say, let's eat. There's just something about this in the Bible, like God is here, we should eat some food. This is so cool. This is why I'm a Christian, probably. I love it. It's like, yes, we have, God is here, God is near, let's celebrate, let's eat, let's feast. Because the idea is, again, when you're, you're eating with someone, there's closeness, there's intimacy, there's relationship, there's fellowship, there's community, there's all those things. And it's saying, wow, God, look at your presence is back here. We can eat, we can feast, we can celebrate. It points us to that one, that dinner or that meal we'll have one day, the marriage feast of the lamb, where we're sitting with Jesus and the saints of old and we're feasting. We're saying we're all together, united under the one king, King Jesus, and we're eating a meal together. What a beautiful thing this is. And by the way, it's like before David can bless others with this meal, he, he has to worship. Like before he can just bless other people, he has to experience it himself. And that's just the way it goes. Before you can bless someone, you kind of have to experience it yourself. Before you can bless someone, you have to just worship yourself. And then out, out of that worship overflows into let me bless some other people, let me feed them, let's have a feast. Number three, the presence of God brings blessing and joy. Listen to what Tim Chester said. He says, eating the meal in the presence of God is the goal of the Bible story and the sign of our reconciliation with God. Eating a meal has always been a sign of reconciliation with God. Jesus is like, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. The whole idea is like, let's get back to the garden. Let's get back to the beginning when we once ate with God in his presence. We will one day get back to that. We'll eat with God in his presence. Isn't that a beautiful thing? One day I'll be looking around, we'll look at a table and be like, oh, we're doing this thing. You said, we're eating a meal with God. Yeah, I know, it's crazy. It's so cool. This is what's happening. The presence of God brings blessing and joy. It does. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. You need to. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Number four is this though. Uh, the presence of God brings contempt brings misunderstanding, brings frustration at times. Let's read verse 20. Verse 20, it says, and David returned to bless his household. Like he wants to bless his home now. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. This is his wife. And said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. You feel the sarcasm. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, (laughs) as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, Gosh, this is such a great, this is how you fight um, in the Bible. I'm just kidding. David says, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. (laughs) Sorry, that's just so funny. Man, there's shots fired. Um, And above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. 
And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Jesus loves you guys. Go, no, this is crazy. When you read this, this is one of those stories, like, man, this is, don't fight this way. <laughs> By the way, marriage, like couples, like don't read this way. Ooh, that's a good one. That's, that's not good. Um, here's what we do see. The natural man does not understand the things of the spirit. Paul says this way, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. She is not understanding what is going on here. I mean, her dad never truly, and this is not, David's not wrong in this. Her dad never had an honor or respect for God or for his presence like David. She's not like this idea of like, no, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant is back in our home. It's in Jerusalem. It's in Zion. This is, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for and looking forward to. And she misses it. She's like, you're just dancing around looking like a fool. And, you're, and he's thinking, oh, no, 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 no. I will be, and I love the different versions, but I will be even more undignified than this. You think that looks bad? Wait, you'll see more. <laughs> like, I love that. Basically he's saying, you know what? Your opinion doesn't matter. These other women looking on that you're mentioning doesn't matter. I have an audience of one. Really, that's what matters. God knows this. Now, again, I don't necessarily love their back and forth. That's not a great marriage thing happening right now. But this is what's going on. David's like, you, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Think about this. This is the most important monumental thing, I think, like in their history up until this point. The Ark of the Covenant is back underneath all 12 tribes. This is huge. Unbelievable. God is at the center. Like, we're going to do this different. We're going to do this right. And you have someone who's like, I don't understand what you're doing. Why are you worshiping God this way? You look like a fool. If you've ever had people look at you or your faith and say, you're, what are you doing? You look like a fool. There's a, there's a sense where you're like, I don't care what you think. I'll be even more indignified than this. Like, it doesn't matter what you say or think. Like, yes, this might look foolish to you, but this is the most important thing in life. See, there comes a point in time in your faith where you almost feel like, why do I feel shame for maybe, I don't know, sharing my faith in public or praying in public? People are looking at us weird when we're praying. Or, what is that? And why do, I even, why do I even care? And there comes a point in time where you're like, do you know what Jesus has done for me? I will be even more indignified. Who cares? I will be even more undignified than this. He's like, it doesn't matter what you think or others think because I have God. I have the most important thing. At the end of the day, it's not gonna be me who looks foolish. It's gonna be you who looks foolish because you've missed the main thing. Listen, don't miss the main thing. There will be people who totally misunderstand you, your love for God, your love for others, why you do what you do, why you give, why you serve, why do you do all that? It's like, you don't realize what he's done for me. You don't realize how good he is. I want you to know, taste and see it. Come on, I invite you out to that. Be like, no, no, that's foolish to me. It's like, this is the most important thing. This is why we exist. Like, why else are we here? Like, really, why are we here? What is the point of this? And I just feel like over and over again, the Lord's trying to be like, do you know why you're here? To know him and enjoy him. To know God, to enjoy him, and to make him known. Just enjoy him. Know him. Make him known. And people are going, ah, I don't get this. I don't get why this is important to you. Well, you can. Because when God comes at the center, when God comes back to the center of life and to the center of everything, you realize everything else in life falls into place. When God is at the center, you go, oh my gosh, I've been living for secondary things that don't matter. And when God is at the center, you go, I'm actually understand why I'm here. I understand why my purpose is. I understand why I'm here. When God is at the center, everything else kind of falls in the line. When your life just feels out of whack and you're like, what am I living for? What am I doing? I just feel miserable. I'd have no joy. It's possible God's not at the center. And when you get God at the center, it seems like everything else kind of realigns. Like, yes, because that's not as important to me as it once was. Getting a name or getting a money or getting whatever, like that does not hit me like it once did because I have the most important thing at the center of my life. And David's like, it's okay if you don't understand. It's okay if I look foolish to you. I love what one author said. One author said, I am more surprised at David dancing than fighting. For by fighting, he subdued his enemies, but by dancing before the Lord, he overcame himself. In a sense, it's crazy how you almost need to lose, lose yourself, right? Like you need to like, David looked foolish. Is this not what Jesus said? Like you, you lose your life so you can find it. It's almost like, I think sometimes we're so afraid to look like the David who's dancing and singing and like childlike in his actions when that is really how you find yourself. Jesus, like if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. And David is looking like a little child, dancing around, singing in his undergarments. Like, he looks, he looks foolish. But like, this is the idea is like, no, but this is the way to the kingdom. It, it's, that, it's that childlike just beauty. 
You go, oh, Jesus, you're here. You're on the throne. You guys lose your life so you can find it. It's okay if other people don't understand. It's okay if people speak about you in a certain way because you really, they, they just see Jesus on you and they don't understand it. Like lose your life so you can ultimately find it. There's something so freeing and so beautiful about this. Last thought, I love what Eugene Peterson said. He says, worship gives the sense that our response to God takes us out of ourselves. It sets us free from the trudge of merely getting across the street. It pulls us into a divine dance. It just, worship does that. It takes us out of ourselves. It sets us free. We know this, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's freedom. And there's something about genuine worship where you're like, I just don't care. I don't know if you've had that moment. I remember being like a middle schooler, always concerned in worship because I grew up in the church, right? And I'm like, I don't know if I should raise my hands. Like, what do I do here? I remember like those thoughts are like so weird. And then like, as I don't know, it, it became an adult. You're like, it's weird. How I just don't care. Like you just don't care. It's weird. How you're like, I don't know if I should do this or that. It's like, I just want to worship Jesus. I could do that sitting down, eyes open, eyes closed, hands up, hands up. I, I can do, I, I can do that. I don't care what other people think. There's something so freeing when you go, oh, the spirit of the Lord is just here. I'm just gonna worship. I don't care. I have something to sing about. I have something to smile. Why do you smile so much? I have something to smile about. Why do you sing? I have something to sing about. Why are you celebrating? I have something to celebrate that God has come near and his name is Jesus. That we have something better than the Ark of the Covenant. We have something better than this box where God's footstool was. God came and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. And now the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? God does not dwell in a temple. God does not dwell in a box. God dwells in our body. Unbelievable. God's here. God's in here. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God dwells in us. It's unbelievable. I want to read this verse in Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3, 16. It's there, John 3, 16. It says this, in those days... The days that are to come, men will no longer say, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the Lord. It will not be remembered. It will not be missed. It says this, nor will another be made. For at that time, all Jerusalem will be the throne of the Lord. It's so sweet to know that God doesn't dwell in this box, but he dwells in us. You know, when we, we have something to celebrate, way more. The ark of the covenant, I can't imagine how sick that'd be to see that coming in but Jesus has come. The Holy Spirit has come and he lives and dwells in you and me who by faith believe on Jesus. You have something to rejoice and celebrate. God has come near. God is in the midst of this place. Yes, amen. Can we worship now? Can we worship like David? Maybe not singing a dance. We do that, do that. There's freedom, but let's just worship. If you wanna leave, go for it. But we're gonna worship <laughs> and I wanna sing and I wanna say, God, we have something to celebrate that God, you're here and you're near. So let's pray. Father, we just wanna say thank you. Lord, we once were lost, but now we're found. We once were blind, but now we see. God, you, we once had, we're, were enemies of you, God, and now we're called friends of God. We have something to sing about, to celebrate. God, you have come near. And Lord, there's something incredibly terrifying and humbling and something incredibly beautiful about that. And we just say thank you. Lord, help, help it produce fruit. God, this, this woman who couldn't worship or sing, she was barren. And the idea, Lord, for us, a, a person who lacks worship will bear no fruit. God, help us to worship. We want to be like you. We want to celebrate you. We want to thank you. And so we just ask that, um, Lord, you'd be here in our midst. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Church, why don't you stand and let's just worship.